Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Zach's. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor here at Grace Fellowship, and we're so glad that you're here with us this morning to worship. We have uh, been working our way through uh, the the biblical book of First Corinthians. Growing up, um, the church that I went to, we would we would go on a family retreat, and then uh, actually every summer. I would go to this summer camp up in North Alabama, and part of part of going to this camp uh, at the end of our time there, you always hiked the mountain, right? At the very end of our camp time, we would uh, we would hike the mountain, and there was like a cross at the very top of the mountain that you were getting to. Uh, and I know that this uh, this may come as a surprise to you, because uh, but I, I was not the the specimen of athletic glory that you see before you now, right? Uh, that, that hike was one of, it, it was rewarding at the end, uh, but at the, but at the very beginning, especially for the, you know, the chubby asthmatic kid who liked video games more than sunshine, the hike was a little bit, uh, was a little bit much to take, right? Uh, I was always glad at the end of it that we, that we got there, uh, and it was always worth it when we got to the top of the mountain and we could look over the valley and, and see everything, and it was absolutely beautiful, but in the midst of it, it was a it was a difficult thing to go through, and if I'm being honest, I kind of feel like that uh, with this with this series in First Corinthians. This is a this is a difficult letter. There are lots of places in the Bible that um, that are feel good places that kind of give you the the warm fuzzies. First um, Corinthians is not that letter, but. God has given us, we, we believe uh, that every part of the Bible is given to us by God for our benefit. And the reason, the primary reason that we work our way through whole books of the Bible here at Grace Fellowship is that we don't want to skirt around any of the difficult stuff, right? There, there's, there's, rewarding, there, there's rewarding parts even in the midst of going through a difficult trek. And so as, as we work our way through 1 Corinthians, I just wanted to be up front and tell you that this, is, this has been a difficult letter for me to, to really kind of read and enjoy Okay, because I, I, I'm, I'm a firstborn, I'm kind of a scolder by nature, so I know what scolding sounds like, uh, and First Corinthians sounds like a whole lot of scolding, right? Every, at every turn, I'm kind of looking like, okay, will you let up just a little bit, please, right? But I think that there are good and beneficial things for us to learn from this letter, or otherwise God would not have given it to us. And so, Here's what I want from you as I, as I do my best to kind of lead us on this trek. My challenge to you and even my invitation to you is that there are going to be times, maybe even several times, when we get to the end of a sermon and you say, um, Kevin, I, I hear you, but I'm not really sure I'm, I'm hearing you. Right? What, what in the world uh, did what you just said, what does that have to do with me today? Right, what does that, what does that have to do with me this week? So, I'm gonna do my best to, you know, to kind of lead us through this letter, but I, I want you to give me feedback, right? To say, hey, listen, I, I think I get it, but help me to understand, right? Like, I'm having this trouble in my marriage, or I've got this difficult child, or I'm really, man, this situation at work is killing me. How does this word 
Help me to see Jesus in the midst of all of those things. And actually, that's a challenge for every sermon that you ever hear, right? We, first and foremost, we want to, we want to go to Jesus first, right? We want to see Christ and Him crucified. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. I, I knew nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. We want to go there, but then we want to be shaped by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So we ought to be able to say after each sermon, what does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have to do with me today, tomorrow, etc.? So just a, just a word about that as we make our way through this, uh, this uphill climb uh, known as 1 Corinthians. Now, last week we started chapter 4. And actually what Paul has been doing over the past uh, two chapters, chapters three and four, is he's showing us what, what gospel-shaped, what Jesus-shaped leaders look like. We know that every group needs a leader, every group needs someone to follow, and part of the problem in Corinth is that they're following the wrong people. And their, their values are being shaped by the wrong things. And so they are rallying themselves and they're actually tearing their church apart because they're looking in the wrong directions. They're looking to the wrong role models. And so Paul gives us several pictures of what uh, Jesus-shaped leaders look like. Uh, the first one he tells us back in chapter 3 is that every leader in the church is really just a worker in God's field, right? They're field hands. One may be a planter, one may be a waterer, but it's only God who gives the growth. And then Paul says, we're builders, right? We're all just workers, right? We're subcontractors on this thing called God's church, God's temple, this people that God is building for himself. It's not a physical place. It's a people that God is building for himself. And leaders in the church are just builders, right? So uh, you've got the architect who lays the foundation or who kind of scopes everything out. Paul uses that language. Uh, and then you may have some plumbers and electricians along the way. But all in all, just builders working in God's house, working on God's temple. And then last week, what we saw is that Leaders in the church are servants, just servants, ordinary servants. They're not the master of the house, they're the help, okay? Now, all of those things, servants, builders, field workers, they're all important. They're all necessary. I mean, you think about all the different roles that your average worker plays. They're all important and necessary, but they're not primary. They're not the main show, they're not the center of attention. They all work hard for a much bigger purpose. That's what Paul wants us to see about leadership in the church, right? So what Paul is telling the Corinthians is, look, if you've got somebody who wants the spotlight, who wants the attention, you need to move away from that person, right? They are drawing attention away from Jesus and onto themselves. They're not, they're not working uh, in the framework that God calls us to work in. And so... That's what the Corinthians were missing. Paul is aiming to correct that. And as we continue our way through chapter 4 today, we're going to start in verse 6. Paul is just kind of describing for us what the life of one of these leaders might look like. Paul, uh, he uses the word apostle. These apostles were the original kind of uh, the, the first builders of the church, right? Jesus entrusted the church to the apostles, and then the rest of the church builds on them. But what Paul is doing in pointing to himself as an apostle, is he saying, follow people like this. So I'm not an apostle, and you're not an apostle, but he is giving us an example of what leadership in Jesus' church looks like. 
All right, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab uh, one of the ones off the rack in front of you. Page 954 is where we're going to start today. We're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 6. I have applied all these things, what I just said about builders, planners, servants. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos... For your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these puffed up people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. God, we pray now that you would take its reading, hearing, and preaching, and that you would use it by the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us and shape us. Lord, we would see Jesus. Help us to see our Savior, and to be transformed and renewed by Him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The opportunity recently to uh, re-watch um, Captain America with my boys. Uh, just in case you're not familiar with the story uh, or you haven't seen the movie. Spoiler alert, I'm, it's been out long enough. You've had your chance. Uh, it's World War II. And America is searching for the right kind of guy so that they can make an army of super soldiers, right? They're looking for, they are looking for a certain 
uh, kind of man that they can uh, pump full of this super serum and transform him into this basically superhuman so that they can make an army of them so that they can beat the Nazis. Uh, and long story short, they find only one or they get only one. Uh, and his name is Steve Rogers. But he doesn't look anything like you might expect a super soldier to look like. In fact, uh, he has applied four times to get into the army and he has failed every time. He's rejected every time. He's got asthma. Uh, he, his body is frail. He is weak. He cannot run very far, right? Basically, any marker that you would use for uh, so- someone who is fit for combat, Steve Rogers does not have any of those markers. So, um, but what Steve Rogers do- does have is, is character and grit and so, um, basically, they make him into Captain America, right? They, uh, this German scientist has created this serum that will amplify uh, and make anybody stronger. And so, they do that with Steve Rogers. He becomes Captain America. But there's, this, there's a scene in the movie that kind of makes it. Uh, I think it kind of captures the, the whole movie in a nutshell. And it's towards the end. Uh, and it says Captain America has gone to, to face off against uh, his nemesis in the movie, the Red Skull. Now, the Red Skull also has, uh, he, he also took the serum. Uh, and while it did also make him stronger, he is also an evil person. And so it has amplified his evil and actually disfigured his face, hence the, the Red Skull part, right? And so you have kind of two equally matched, you know, good and evil. And as, as villains are wont to do, uh, the Red Skull is monologuing. <laughs> villains and preachers have a lot in common. And, uh, but he's, he's monologuing and he looks at, uh, he looks at Captain America and he says, what makes you so special? And Roger says, me? Nothing. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. Right? Boom. Like that, like we eat that up. You want to fight, like I'll follow that guy into battle. Right? I mean, that's, that's the line because the whole, the whole point of the movie is that Steve Rogers is, is, is not the guy anybody was looking for. He didn't have any of the markers. He didn't have any of the flags. He didn't have anything that said, this is the man we want to follow. Right. In fact, he had been told several times, you are not the man to follow. Now, what it took him was some super serum and a brilliant German scientist. Right. Um, but Paul, we're, the, the church is a little bit different. Right. We don't have I mean, there probably are brilliant German scientists in the church, but we're fresh out of super serum. So there's got to be something else. The, the point for today is that in a similar way, the Corinthians were looking for all the wrong things. They were looking for all the wrong markers, and it was beginning to tear their church apart. They were boasting in themselves. They were boasting in the leaders they could rally behind, uh, and they were looking at what humans could do. They were looking at human effort, what they could produce, instead of looking at God. And as a result, they were, they were looking for the wrong kind of people, and as a result, it was beginning to tear the church apart. And so Paul tells them, and what we're going to see today, is that Gospel-shaped churches need servant leaders who will follow, and I almost want to use the word imitate here. 
Um, the, but I know that's a, that's, a, that's a difficult and tricky word when it comes to the Bible because nobody in full really imitates Jesus. And we, we don't, we're kind of on dangerous ground when we say this. But there are things about the life of a Jesus, of, of a Christ-centered leader that will overlap with Jesus. So uh, we want servant leaders who will follow Jesus Christ and then give us an example to strive after. That's what Paul says right at the very end of the section we read. He says, imitate me, follow me. We're going to talk more about that. So gospel-shaped churches need servant leaders who follow Jesus Christ and give us an example to strive after. We're going to look at this in a couple ways. First, we're going to talk about the view the Corinthians have of themselves and of leadership and of the world. We'll call that the puffed-up view. Paul uses that word puffed up three times in this passage. Uh, it's translated twice at the bottom as arrogant, but he uses that word puffed up three times. The puffed up view, the cross-centered view, which is what Paul advocates, and then uh, some thoughts on how we can make the switch from one to the other, right? To, uh, if, we, if we want cross-centered and not puffed up, how do we get there, all right? So the puffed up view. Um, Paul, again, Paul uses this three times. You see it uh, there in verse 6. He doesn't want any of them to be puffed up in favor of one against another. Uh, down at the bottom in verse 9, um, he says, in verse 8, excuse me, in verse 18, he says, Some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and we'll find out not the talk of these puffed up people, but their power. Every time I say the word puffed up, which is kind of fun to say, puffed up, um, I think of a, I think, I think of a puffer fish, right? Cause what, what does a puffer fish do? They're like this, it's like this big. And then as soon as it perceives a threat, what does it do? Right? It blows itself up. It puffs itself up. Uh, but the whole idea, it's, it's whole defense mechanism is deceit, right? Cause it's not that big. Right? What it's doing is it's, is it's filling itself with air, I guess. I didn't look it up, but, right? It's filling itself up to appear larger than it really is, right? It's puffed up. So it's not, it's not that big in truth, but it is aiming to deceive others when it feels threatened. How well does that capture the way we respond often when we're threatened, right? When we perceive that someone is coming at us, we kind of, right, we kind of swell up a little bit. We call it in, you know, in, in gas circles, when you bow up, right, um, puffed up. We, our egos, uh, become bloated. There's a, there's a good book and I forgot to grab it before I came up here. Um, but it is written by, uh, Tim Keller. It's a short little book. We've got some on order, so they're going to be on the book table. And it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, and it, and he, in part, is about this passage, but he goes into what it means to be puffed up, bloated, distended, full of nothing, right? And so, uh, our egos become inflated, but really, there's nothing there. There's nothing to there's nothing to back them up. That's what it's, that's what it means to be puffed up. And in this puffed up view, let's just see how the Corinthians view themselves. Look at verse 8. Uh, Paul is using some fairly, we might even say harsh, sarcasm with the Corinthians. He's really trying to get their attention. Verse 8, he says, Already you have all you want. You're satisfied. Already you've become rich. 
Without us, you have become kings. What's Paul saying? What are they doing? Well, they're acting like they've already arrived, right? We've, we've arrived. We've got everything we need. Paul, we don't need you anymore. I mean, you were helpful at some point, but we're fine now. We've gotten there. We have arrived. They're full. They're satisfied. They're rich. They almost perceive themselves as reigning like kings. Paul keeps going. Verse 10. He's, he's being, again, sarcastic with them. Uh, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. He's talking about how he perceives himself, which we'll look at in a minute, versus how they see themselves. You are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor. We are dishonored, right? Paul's drawing out their feelings about themselves. They think there's something that they're not. They're not really wise. They're not really strong. They might be receiving some honor, but really, as far as honor goes, they don't have it. In southern terms, we would say they're getting a little big for their britches, right? These people think they're something they're not. They believe they have arrived. And so Paul is pointing this out, right? Because um, when... As uh, Keller points out in his book, right, when you have a, a bloated part of your body, something that's distended and swollen, you need to relieve the swelling, right? Paul's trying to let a little bit of air out of the puffer fish so that they wouldn't be so inflated. But it begs a question for us, right? We need to ask ourselves, how do we perceive ourselves? How do you see yourself? Now, very few of us might actually be so bold as to say, I've arrived. Right? Oh, we tend to hide our sin a little bit better than that. We tend to cloak our pride in false humility. But really, deep down, how do you, how do you view yourself? Do you, are you self-satisfied? Uh, have, you, have you reached the point where you really don't think you need other people? You really don't think you need Jesus? That's the danger the Corinthians are in, right? They're... They're beginning to trust in their own strength. They're beginning to trust in what they think they have. And so, I would ask you, do you see your need? Do you, or are you trusting in your strength? Do you see your need of being in the Word? Do you see your need of being in a small group with other people? Or are you a lone ranger? Are you content to get by on your natural talents and gifts? And we can draw this conclusion. Comfort uh, is a dangerous place to be for the Christian. The Corinthians had become very self-satisfied and comfortable. They liked where they were. And that was a dangerous place for us to be because when we're comfortable, we don't believe we need anything else. Now... I'm, I'm not talking about being content. Uh, there's a difference between contentment and comfort. Right? Contentment uh, is content in what is happening, but right, it looks for its joy outside of itself. Comfort is self-satisfied. Comfort rests easy because I've got what I need. It's, uh, it's the story that Jesus told about the rich man who said, 
oh, look, I've got plenty of barns, I've got plenty of food, now I can just rest easy and, and I'll have, you know, have everything that I need. And an angel comes to him and says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. He spent all his effort becoming comfortable, resting easy, and did not pursue God. He never perceived his need. So comfort means uh, that we're self-sufficient. We feel like we've got everything, we don't need anything, but that's a bit of an illusion, isn't it? Uh, 2008, big economic downturn, began to reveal that maybe, just maybe, we're not as self-sufficient as we think we are, right? Uh, for especially if you were, uh, if you're an older person in the room and you had, um, you know, your retirement, you were just about to draw on it, and then all of a sudden, right, the housing bubble burst, and everything that you had saved up and invested in shrinks like that. Uh, talk to one of our older sisters about uh, about the crippling pain of arthritis and how increasingly your body just doesn't do what it used to be able to do so that even so that even just picking up a coffee cup becomes an excruciating endeavor. Uh, ask someone about the debilitating effects of Alzheimer's, right? We are not nearly as sufficient as we believe that we are. And it doesn't take much for that sufficiency to go away. And so the call of the Christian life is not to a comfortable independence, right? The call of the Christian life is to joy-filled dependence. See, the danger of comfort is that we don't believe there's anything we need, and so we're not dependent. We're independent, right? We become the self-made man or the self-made woman. And listen, of all the people who could brag about that, Paul the Apostle would be one of them, right? He was a well-accomplished, well-schooled, very able person. He managed to accomplish a lot of things in a very short period of time. And yet, as we're going to see in a minute, Paul did not take credit for any of that. He was not comfortable. And so let's not seek comfort. Let's seek Christ and whatever Christ brings us. So the puffed up view is just that, right? It's this self-satisfied, I've got everything I need, I don't need you view. What about the cross-centered view? Look at how Paul sees himself there. Verse 9, he says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. What, what Paul has in mind is this train. So if, um, if you were living in Paul's day, if an army came and conquered your city, then you would be carried captive, right? You would, as, as the, as the conquering king and his army kind of did their victory parade through their hometown, all of the captives would be led behind them, right? And these were the people like you threw produce at them, you shouted insults at them. That's what Paul, he's like, Paul says, that's what I feel like. I feel like, I feel like the guy at the end of the train who's sentenced to death, right? He says, uh, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. A spectacle. The, the word there is where we get our word theater from. And it referred to the Roman arena. And if you don't know, what happened in the Roman arena is that prisoners and slaves fought it out to the death. Or they were fed to the lions, right? So basically, these people were put on display for the entertainment of others. And what happened to them in the arena was often, was often gruesome. 
Paul says, that's what I feel like. I'm not the guy in the luxury box watching the show. I'm being put in front of other people uh, for their sport, so it seems, right? I am being displayed uh, in a very uh, undesirable place, right? I'm somewhere that no sane person would want to be. Which raises the question, why? Why? Uh, why is that a good place to be? Why does Paul almost seem to revel in being that person? Why does God put us in those places? And we could say this, God uses the arena. Whatever arena that may be, God uses the arena, the emergency room, the classroom, the boardroom, whatever arena God places you in, God uses that so that we would see that where we are weak and outmatched, God displays His glory. Where God puts us in the arena so that when we are weak and outmatched, He can display His glory. Paul will say in his letter to the Second Corinthians uh, that God gets His glory in Paul's weakness. So Paul's not afraid to be weak. He's not afraid to be a spectacle. Because he knows that in his weakness, God's glory is displayed. Right? If you, and just, let's just think about, let's just contrast those two views. Who's on display? If you're the guy in the luxury box, right? What's, the, the focus on him is, is all about what he's got, right? How he got there. We got to sit in a, we got to sit one time, we went to a race at Talladega. It's the only one time I've been to a race at Talladega. Um, and we got to sit in the Alabama Power Box. We got to be those people for like 10 minutes. Um, and you're, like, you're removed from the action. You know, the loud noises, the smells, the heat. That's the big thing, right? You're, you're removed from all of that. But don't you, like, if you're, if you're sitting in the seats and like in the regular stands, don't you kind of always look up at that box and be like, man... What do they have that I don't? The focus is on them. Now think about the Roman arena and Paul. Uh, this idea of being being in the being in the arena. Paul says, "What's on display when I'm when I'm sentenced to death is not my strength, but my weakness. And when my weakness is on display, God's strength is what I have to trust in. God's glory is what's most important." D.L. Moody. He was an evangelist in the 19th century. Think somebody akin to Billy Graham uh, in our day. And he was invited to go over to, to Great Britain. He was an American evangelist. But he was invited to go over to Great Britain and speak and preach at Cambridge University, right? Cambridge University. And he was terrified. Absolutely terrified. He, he did, he was not a Cambridge man, right? He, he was not a Cambridge scholar. He was very worried uh, that he was going to look like a fool. And initially, he looked like a fool. As he would preach, the students who listened to him actually mocked him from the crowd, right? They lobbed insults at him. They shouted over him. At one point, they even took the chairs in the room and like built a pyramid. Like they were, they were toying with him. And yet he went back day after day, right? Back into the arena. And as he persisted, God's glory was revealed. And some of those same people who mocked him began to listen and believed. And so, 
D.L. Moody's weakness in that arena proved to be God's strength. That's what the cross does. Look at how Paul describes himself in verse 13. He says, we, are, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, the off-scouring, your Bible may say. Think about what you would scrape off of your shoe, right? That's how Paul uh, sees himself. But look how it enables him to respond. Look at verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst... We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. I heard somebody in Sunday school say, this is a terrible marketing campaign, right? Like nobody would look at what Paul is is describing right here and be like, yeah, yeah, I want to be that guy. (laughs) What can I do to be hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and not have a roof over my head? Follow Jesus? Okay. Yeah, sign me up, right? But Paul, for some reason, Paul says, this is worth it. Look, what it, look how it enables him to respond. Uh, verse 12, he says, We labor, toil, working with our own hands, which, by the way, in, in Greek culture, menial, label, menial labor was considered low class. Right? That was reserved for the lowest. Uh, and Paul says, well, that's kind of who I am. When reviled, so when insulted, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, so when people take my words and twist them and make them say something I'm not saying or they just outright lie about me, when slandered, we entreat, encourage, speak kindly. I want you to go back through that list and where Paul's answers are, uh, kind of erase those in your mind and let's just have a little fill in the blank. All right. So I want, how would you respond? How, how would your response be different from Paul's? When insulted, I don't, don't say it out loud. We don't want, we don't want, we don't really, really want to know. Um, just in your head. When insulted, I what? When persecuted, what do you do? When slandered, when someone says false things about you, you, how different are my responses from the Apostle Paul? Look at how the cross enables him to respond to each one of those things. Right? Instead of, instead of saying, I'm fighting back. Right? When, uh, when reviled, when verbally abused, I shout back. No? Paul says, we bless. Right? We bless people instead of respond in kind. When persecuted, when mistreated, and, and we know that Paul was, right? We have ample evidence from the book of Acts. This book, 2 Corinthians, he talks about being literally beaten. Right? At one point... You can imagine, again, this whole marketing campaign thing is a successful preacher, right? Um, Paul literally has stones thrown at him until he is almost dead. Like, people pelt him with rocks, big ones, not little ones, big ones, so that he is dead. Then he is dragged out of town and left in the trash heap because that's what you did with people that you stoned. 
You just you, you took them outside of the city. You left them in the trash heap. Okay? And by God's grace, Paul gets up, and do you know where he goes? Back into the city. <laughs> right? Either he's insane, or there's something about this message he believes that enables him to not respond and not run away, but lean into. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, I don't get defensive. I entreat. I encourage. It's not saying, Paul's not saying truth isn't important. But what Paul is saying is I don't respond in kind. That's the difference between a puffed up leader and a cross-centered leader. Right? Somebody who is, somebody who understands their position so well in Jesus that instead of running away from criticism or getting defensive about criticism, they lean into that and say, hmm, you may be right about this and that. You're wrong about this, this, and this. But we could probably say that better. Thanks for letting me know. Right? That's cross-centered humility versus puffed-up conceit. That's the kind of leader Paul says we need to look for. So here's the question. How in the world does Paul do that? Puffed-up view, cross-centered view. How, how do we begin maybe to make that switch? Look at what Paul says in verse... 14. He says, I'm not writing these things to you to make you ashamed, but to warn you as my beloved children. Listen to that tone, right? Not to shame, right? Not, Paul doesn't want to be that, that parent in Walmart that makes everybody else feel uncomfortable, Right? Like you've never heard such blistering language used about a small child. Like it's, it's, it's like, oh, gosh, right? Paul says, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to shame you. But I am your father in the faith, and I'm trying to warn you. I'm like a, like a good parent. My, my beloved children don't walk this way anymore. Come this way. If you go down this path, it is ruin and destruction. Paul says, come away. Listen to what I'm saying. And then he says this in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. If you've ever been in leadership or if you're a parent or a political figure, uh, you know the, the daunting weight of being an example, Right? One of the early things I noticed as far as my children imitating me was that they seemed to imitate all of the bad things. Which then led you to ask the question, like, do I do anything good in front of my children? You know, like while I'm, while I'm yelling at them, telling them not to yell at each other. Where could you possibly have learned that from? Right? So when you hear Paul say, I urge you, be imitators of me. That's really daunting, isn't it? I mean, is there, when, think about your own life. Is there anybody that you could say, yeah, yeah, follow me. Do exactly what I'm doing. We kind of, we, like, we don't want that. We kind of push that away, like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not any kind of example. So, like, do as I say, not as I do, right? Like, really like that. But interestingly enough, Paul doesn't say that. He says, I sent you Timothy so that you would be reminded what, is, what I said, how I teach in all the churches, and what I did. 
do what I say and do what I do. Now, Paul's not talking about perfection because he's going to say in uh, chapter 11, verse 1 of this same letter, he's going to say, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. So that's the key right there. Paul's not saying he's a perfect person and he needs to be an example, you know, like you need to follow him in everything. But he is, he is saying this. Paul's not saying, I've arrived. He is saying, uh, to the degree that I teach, follow, and model Jesus Christ, follow me. To the degree that I teach, follow, and model Jesus Christ, follow me. That's what, that's what we want, right? That would be a cross-centered view. Now, what does that look like? Because... Man, that seems dawning. Who, who in the world then do I imitate? Uh, is that the only way to move from being puffed up to cross-centered? Well, let's just, let's just listen, uh, to what Paul says later on in another letter, Philippians. And I want you to compare what Paul says here in Philippians to what the Corinthians said about themselves. Remember, they said, we're rich, we're satisfied, we're kings. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What's Paul saying there? Paul had a lot of natural gifts. He was well-born, he was well-educated, and he was, a I mean, a nice guy. He ends up being a religious terrorist uh, for Judaism, but before that moment... Right, Paul is the kind of person you would, like you would say, Hey kids, spend time with Paul. Paul looks at his resume and in his life and he says, worthless, if it keeps me from knowing Christ. That's how we make the move from being puffed up to to cross-centered. We have to look at all of the things in our life, particularly the good things, those things which would cause us to say, I have arrived, and say, if these things keep me from knowing Jesus, I don't want them. I want to follow Jesus. I want to count everything else as rubbish. Throw it away in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, I have been saved by His grace. I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from obedience. I've been saved by His grace. I have all I need in Him. And I want to keep knowing Him and growing in Him. So anything that gets in the way of that, especially the good stuff, I consider a loss that I might gain Christ. Jim Elliott was a missionary uh, to the Aka Indians. Uh, he spent several years, he and his team spent several years in preparation, getting ready to share the gospel with this group of people who had never heard it before. Right? Uh, and they even did... They, so their plan was to land a plane on this uh, island, this sandbank in the middle of a river, uh, so that they could begin 
uh, working with this isolated group of Indians. And these were savage people. Uh, they were they were known to be very warlike. Uh, and in the process of uh, sharing the gospel with them, so they made one plane trip, they landed, everything was fine. They came back and they made another stop. And when they got out of the plane, they were speared to death. All of them lost their lives. Jim Elliott wrote this in his journal some days before that. He said, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The Corinthians were all about what they could keep, what they had gained, what they had. Paul was all about giving all of that up to gain something he could never lose. Wealth, strength, intellect, it will all go away. Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes is very clear. All of the things we work so hard and strive so hard for, we will lose. Jim Elliot. Channeling the Apostle Paul said, He is no fool to give up those things to gain Jesus over here. And then he will never ever lose. That is how we move from being puffed up to Christ, to cross-centered. So let's stop fooling ourselves into believing that we've already arrived. Instead, may we be happy to call ourselves fools for Christ. Let's pray. God... Paul's words are almost uh, unintelligible to us. It's not something, God, that we really resonate with. Loss, weakness. All these words that Paul's been using through these four chapters of 1 Corinthians, it's not the route we often go. And yet... It is the route, Lord Jesus, that you took. You yielded your glory and became a man, became like us, submitted yourself to your own law, and then took the shameful step and submitted yourself to death. You took the way of the cross. And as bizarre as it sounds, you call us to do the same. Because you say that the way of life is down, not up. That the way to the crown is through the cross. So Lord Jesus, may we be people who form a church who follow examples of such servant-hearted leadership. May we, may we take on what Paul calls leaders to in this passage. May we be the kind of people who embody this cross-centered life so that we are a community that embodies this cross-centered life. That we might respond to hostility the way that Paul responds to hostility. The way that Jesus responds to hostility. Who like a, a lamb before his shearers was silent. Who said on the cross, as his clothes 
Lord, as your clothes are being gambled for underneath your feet, you say, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. May we have that heart and mind by the power of the Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.